Now let's uh, look at the passage from which I'm preaching, Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, which is on page uh, 1,162, 1,162. And you may remember that I actually finished last time on verse 18, do not get, so that's uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And I made some comments uh, uh, at the end of my last sermon on this, but I will be starting uh, from um, being filled with the Spirit and uh, moving on to verse 19. Addressing one another or speaking to one another, could be even singing to one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always And for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, could we uh, pray? Oh, Father in heaven, we know that your word tells us that what appears to be totally insignificant to the world is actually vital for us. Lord, Attending to the word of God, hearing it ring in our hearts is so important. It is so important, Lord, that your Holy Spirit helps us to receive this, changes our wills, gives us spiritual desires. Oh, Lord, we pray, please, that you will grant to each one of us, uh, Lord, that work of your spirit as we meditate upon these words. And indeed, not just during the sermon, but, uh, Lord, um, in our day-to-day lives. Lord, we pray. Please uh, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. And Lord, uh, grant us obedient hearts, Lord, to go in the way that you want us to go. And uh, we we pray that your Holy Spirit will uh, indeed uh, fill us with praise and Lord, fill us with the spirit of obedience to you in this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, as I said, I'm actually uh, looking at this um, in a bit more detail, at this phrase or this sentence of Paul where he talks about, don't get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, that's being a waster, that's being a useless, unproductive sot. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing And making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now first, being filled with the Spirit. Actually, that's a a kind of a a buzzword. It's actually a kind of a a fairly charged expression. Filled with the Spirit uh, for the past 30 or 40 years. If you meet someone who says... Oh yeah, come to my church, we've got a filled with the Spirit pastor. Well, they don't exactly mean what's said here. They usually mean that the person is filled with the Spirit because he displays spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues, prophesying, doing healings, or having some remarkable anointing that that they claim to have from God. And it it becomes a kind of a, a a, a key word of difference, you know, such that 
Sometimes I think non-charismatics, non-Pentecostals feel intimidated, you know, about the use of the word being filled with the Spirit. And, and uh, sometimes think, oh, you know, uh, uh, perhaps we ought not to get into that area because we might tempt people to stray into, into that territory. Now, I want to notice this, that the territory of being filled with the Spirit is the ownership of everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. And uh, I'm reminded, there was a, they, I actually mentioned this in the open air, uh, but it, it sticks with me as an illustration that applies to this particular issue. Uh, there was a Brit, a British guy, in I think it was 1907, who was in Trafalgar Square, and he noticed an American, uh, you know, really interested in, in actually, you know, the, the statue in Trafalgar Square. Now, this particular man was a, a, a con man, this Brit, and he suddenly had a bright idea. And he decided that he was going to sell Nelson's monument to this American. And uh, he went, got into earnest conversation with him. He was well-dressed, had a suit on, and it was very plausible, as all con men are. And uh, eventually he set up a meeting, and he prepared documents, and he sold Trafalgar Square, uh, he sold Nelson's monument to this American for $30,000. Now, uh, which you may find almost unbelievable, but it's true. He then went on to sell Big Ben to another American. <laughs> and actually, now this is, you know, this is in the realms of the ridiculous. He actually, he actually chose uh, his, his, one particular person and he got a down payment on Buckingham Palace from this man. <laughs> now, eventually, uh, he sold the Statue of Liberty. He, he was going all over the place till he was finally caught, tracked down and sent to jail for a number of years. But I want you to notice this. He had a confidence trick. He pretended to own the territory, and he didn't. And he pretended that he had, he had authority over this ter- territory, and he didn't. And I'm afraid that there are certain people, certain teachers, certain pastors, certain people on religious TV, certain people who write books, who claim they have the territorial rights over being filled with the Spirit. You have to go along to their meetings to be anointed by them, by having hands laid on them, or going through certain rituals that end up with people speaking in tongues or prophesying and so on and so forth. And it is completely and utterly untrue. Let's read what Jesus himself said about receiving the Spirit and indeed being filled, being filled with the Spirit. Um, firstly, John 4, John 4 Verses 10 to 14. Talking to the Samaritan woman, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who is it who says to you, give him a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He would have, you would ask Jesus. You wouldn't come to a man or any person who claimed the authority to, to be able to give such an experience. You would come to Jesus and receive uh, the, the, the actual spirit of God. In John, verse, uh, John chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus stands before the crowds in Jerusalem at the time of a ceremonial outpouring of water, uh, which um, looked forward to the Messianic age when it was believed the Spirit was going to be poured out upon uh, the, the Israelite people. And Jesus stood up and he said, John 7, verse 30, 38, Whoever believes in me, whoever trusts in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And uh, getting back to John 4, verse 14, and this is where the title that I gave this talk comes from, the actual vocabulary. 
John 4 verse 14 in the uh, English Standard Version says, Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman, he says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The Bible is so clear that when, when you receive Jesus and believe and trust in him, you receive the Holy Spirit. And you receive the capacity to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, we all know that uh, how inconsistent and sinful we are, as, even as Christians. And we know that we failed the Lord and often dried up as Christians and walked without him. However, it is an axiom of, of Scripture that if we have received Christ, if we are true Christians, we have received the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8 9, You, have, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And uh, so everyone who has trusted in the Lord, whether they've had an incredibly uh, emotional experience when they became Christians, or whether it's a very quiet turning to the Lord with not seeming any big storms and, and lightning bolts in their life, but a, a change has come over them. They've become obedient uh, to the living God by receiving Christ by faith. Their lives have changed and they have become the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Now, there is a, a, a tremendous uh, sermon by Spurgeon, actually, called... Um, um, I made a note of it somewhere. It was 1882. It, it, it's, it's called the, the, the Dwelling and the Outpouring of the Holy Spirit, or words to that effect. And in 1882, many years before the Pentecostal movement started, and the blessings that came with the Pentecostal movement, because our tremendous blessings that come from people who believe the Bible, although they add things on, the, the things they believed, the gospel, and their, and their going out urgently with the gospel has, has been a blessing to this world, and many, many millions of people have been saved through the Pentecostal movement, despite the, addition, the add-ons that aren't true and aren't biblical about the filling of the Holy Spirit. The thing is this, that 30 years before the uh, Pentecostal movement started and then another 30 40 years later the charismatic renewal started so-called renewal started he he lays down these basic principles that it is the indwelling of the holy spirit which is the absolute fact for everyone who has received christ uh, paul says in ephesians in what we've seen earlier that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in christ as we have come to faith. And those blessings include all of the blessings that the Holy Spirit brings into our life. Now, why, though, is this question of the filling of the Spirit so important? Why am I making such a big thing of this? Well, because it is a fundamental of the Christian life. We need the Spirit's influence in our life. We need to be filled to overflowing. Indeed, if you look at Romans chapter 5, it doesn't actually stop at verse uh, uh, 33 actually as I've mentioned before the chapters and numbers in, uh, in the New Testament were added centuries later and Romans 5 doesn't really uh, this passage in Romans 5 doesn't end at the end of the chapter it, it, you know Paul deals in Romans chapter 5 
with the outworking of the, out, uh, of the outflowing of the Holy Spirit in, in church relationships and in praise. But he then goes on to family life. He goes on to people's jobs. He goes on to children's relationships with their parents. He goes on to talk about the spiritual warfare that we have. And he goes on to talk about witnessing. All of these things are absolutely dependent upon Christians being filled with the Holy Spirit and, all, and able to cope with them. You see, there's a natural, if you like, drying out, depletion of our spiritual resources that happen hour by hour and day by day. When we become Christians, we're not permanently transformed into, you know, wonderful Christians. Actually, there's a, a battle going on. And uh, Paul talks about this in detail in Romans 6 to 8. And we need to have a constant replenishing of the spiritual resources that are transforming us to be like Christ in order not to gradually lose our spiritual fervor. Gradually, as, as Timothy did when, when, when we're talking about the spiritual gifts he had, he was letting his spiritual gifts die down and die out. And Paul says, find them into flame, your spiritual gifts. And and our spiritual life needs fanning into flame every day. And indeed, we might say every few hours. Because we're constantly being drained of our spiritual life as we live in this world. And the Lord knows that there, there's a constant, uh, you know, there's a constant uh, ex- uh, exhausting and, and enervating experience that we have as Christians that we need constantly to be renewed day by day. Now... You won't believe this. This is another thing that you might laugh at. But I once used to be ooh, about uh, 100 pounds less in weight than I am now, um, about 30 years ago. And for fun, I used to do a half marathon every month by myself. Uh, Martin may remember uh, in those, those, those wonderful days of our youth when we used to go, go running. I, I used to run out into the countryside, do a 13-mile run. And I did it. I did it you know, it's great fun. I did it in about an hour and a half. Um, the first time I did it, I didn't realize what, it was, what actually happens if you run, uh, I sweat a lot, and if you run on a hot day, without, and you only take a liter or so of water. And when I got home, I, I was at, in an absolute state of complete, it wasn't my muscles that were, were gone, my, I was so exhausted and enervated, I could hardly move. Uh, I, I, you know, I was in a terrible state until I started replenishing my water, the water supplies and so on and so forth. Truth is, dehydration can kill you. And indeed, I might have died on that day, I think, looking back on it. I was so depleted. It took me, uh, I don't know how many um, litres of water I had to drink to actually get rehydrated. I think it was seven litres or eight litres of water to, to actually start hydrating myself properly. Now, the thing is this, is that's a picture of what Christians can be like in their spiritual lives as we live in this world. It could be sin, that might, might cause us to be weak and, and useless, but it can just be the struggle of living. It can just be the opposition of people, the disappointments, the sufferings that we go through, that we can actually just be depleted and gradually turn into, into, into uh, you know, spiritual, uh, spiritual um, um, bedridden, if you like, spiritually. We have these draining, exhausting activities. We have, we have church community and we live in community. Relationships between Christians can really get us down 
If we get into wrong relationships with our fellow Christians, and it does happen sometimes uh, where Christians are irritated, get angry, don't talk to one another, they, get, they grind up against one another. This can, if it happens on numerous occasions, we can reach the point where we just want to give up going to church. That's why Paul, by the way, starts off by looking at church relationships when, uh, uh, straight away. When he's talking about being filled with the Spirit, he goes straight away into the way Christians relate to one another. But likewise, it's true in marriage situations, in family life, in our jobs, in the spiritual warfare, and in witnessing, as I've mentioned already. Now, I want us to notice this, that the answer to spiritual exhaustion and spiritual depletion is being constantly filled by the Spirit of God. That's what Paul says. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, that you're wasting your life by getting, taking drugs or, or getting drunk to find happiness and peace. Rather be filled with the Spirit. And in fact, as a lot of you will know, the tense there in the Greek is, is an active present. It's, it's be, being filled all of the time. It's not just be filled once, you know, but constantly have the inflowing and outflowing of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, as D.L. Moody uh, once said, God commands us to be filled, and therefore it's possible to be filled. You know, a lot of Christians will say, well, I don't, I've, I've never experienced this lightning bolt of being filled with the Spirit. Well, we're not talking about here a lightning bolt. We're talking about what Scripture says, the way the Spirit of God fills our innermost being, and how our innermost being is changed and affected by, by the word of God. God commands us to be being filled with the Spirit. And all of these different activities that I've talked about, our relationships in church, our relationships with human beings, our, our family life, our jobs, our, our uh, spiritual warfare, all of these things are activities that we as Christians can be being filled with the Spirit. Now, let's uh, notice, you know, the thing that I did mention in my last sermon, that Paul refers to the drunkard. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. Um, Now, we know in the ancient world, amongst the, uh, amongst the, the different nations of the Roman Empire, drink was always... Um, a factor. I'm not going to even say it was a problem because they, when people who are drunkards and people who love alcohol, they don't think it's a problem. They just think it's a, it's a, one of the highlights of their life to get plastered. Uh, and the Romans didn't think of drink so much as uh, such a massive problem. Um, but of course, for Christians, we know it is. Now, he parallels being drunk with wine, totally a wasted life, with being filled with the Spirit, a fulfilled life. But the question immediately comes, well, okay, I understand that. And I also understand drunks sing. Okay, so he's gone on to say that Christians should sing. Okay, I can see that link. Is that all there is to it? Well, the first thing we we need to understand is that... um, the Romans used to get drunk, um, not by going to the supermarket and drinking at home, but they used to go to parties. In fact, the word symposium, which we use for a, you know, a very 
uh, elitist sort of meeting of minds in a symposium to compose a, a, a paper which will be distributed to university heads throughout you know, England. And so on. The word symposium had to do with a drinking party. And uh, the idea was people would go for a meal and then the meal after the meal, well, during the meal there would be wine, but the, the wine during the meal would be the, the first tasters of, of the drinking party that then ensued. And we know that all over the Roman Empire, the drinking party consisted in, obviously taking more and more wine, but also sing songs, people singing. It, it was all part of the deal. And uh, you'd have a sing song, and uh, if, you've ever been to a, if you've ever been to a pub where people are half half drunk and on the way to being drunk, you'll know that it is very, very common for people when they're drunk to sing and to sing things together. You just hear drunken football fans uh, loving to sing. And what is interesting is this, that Paul actually goes from talking about a a symposium, a drinking party amongst a group of uh, uh, non-Christians socializing, to talking about Christians. And he, he, he hasn't directly here, he's not here directly referring to a church meeting. In 1 Corinthians 11 to 14, he's referring to church meetings. And uh, what comes up is, includes hymn singing and, and so on as a subject. But here there's, there's no connection to any particular church meeting. It's, it's, Paul is saying Christians, when they meet together socially, can have a praise party. That's what really he appears to be saying. Now, actually, um, when I was trying to puzzle uh, actually how this transition was made, why Paul made this transition from talking about a drunk singing to to Christian singing outside the context of an actual service, I thought to myself, well, I can understand uh, how... You know, people, people like to sing songs. Children like to sing songs, don't they? I, with my grandkids, I, I'll, I teach them old-fashioned songs. They, they'll, you know, like, she'll be coming round the mountain and ten green bottles and old MacDonald had a farm. And, of course, they'll watch it on Coca Melon as well, all these old songs. And they learn the songs and we'll sing them in the car. And I can remember coming back from football or basketball matches in the minibus when I was 14 and 15 and we'd be singing away... Um, Sometimes they rude songs. I was a Christian at the time. I didn't take part in those. But often just in old-fashioned songs like On Ilkley Moor Bar Tat and things like this. Uh, And people like socially to sing. And children like to sing. And in a culture in which they didn't have recorded music, they didn't have hymn books, they didn't have, um, you know, ways of transferring music apart from one way you learn a song and then you sang it together. And then, you, and then you sang it over and over and you learnt the words and everybody knew those songs. Now, that is the way, of course, that these Christians in Ephesus would have learnt their songs. They didn't have a hymn book. Someone composed a simple song and to a, we don't know what kind of tune it was, it, to our ears it would have probably sounded uh, very, very strange, the tunes they would have sung to and they would have enjoyed singing to. But these songs were generated naturally. And, they, and when Christians came together, Paul said, no, don't get drunk with wine. But when you come together, you know, socially, sing the praises of Christ. Addressing one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all of your heart. Now, 
When I was, uh, when I was uh, younger, when I was a teenager, right up to the age of 21, 22, I used to go to a youth group, and there used to be loads of singing after, afterwards. And uh, over the years, I've heard people make very patronising comments about youth groups with their sing songs. I mean, Chris, I've heard Christians say, oh yeah, they have sing songs. Well, I can remember as a 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21-year-old singing to the Lord with all of my heart around the piano with about 50 or 60 other kids and praising God. And there was no question of it being a sing-song, like someone was drunk. People then, as they had their singing in a social context, it was after church, go around for a cup of tea around the youth group house, people were praising God with all of their heart. Indeed, I would honestly say, why don't we have, uh, not a sing-song, but a praise party here from time to time? Maybe after a church service, we just get around and we praise God. Because that is, that is clearly one of the things that Paul is referring to here. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all of your heart. Now, uh, when I researched this further, I discovered that actually... Um, what I'm describing here, a praise party, was precisely what we have evidence from the early church that they did do. Um, the early church fathers have reference to the fact that Christians would gather together uh, for a meal, sometimes for a ser- in, a, in, a, in a service in a home. The first part would be the more formal part uh, with, with um, sharing of scripture and, and a sermon. And the second part would include a meal and then singing and praising God, using exactly the same pattern. Now, you remember that when Jesus uh, had the Last Supper, they had a song after supper. That followed, the, that followed a, a, a similar pattern. And in fact, a book I was reading saying that uh, this kind of idea was also percolating into the Hebrew, Hebrew uh, societies too, uh, not in the synagogue services where they didn't have that kind of singing, but in, uh, in services like... Um, the Passover meal and so on, that this idea that you could gather together and praise God as families or as in, as in social groupings. Now, what I'm, uh, what I'm therefore challenging us to do is to see that when we are singing hymns in church, when we are, uh, you know, having, what, you know, we're, we're perhaps going on a camp and we, we sing in the, in, you know, in the, in the bus on the way along to the camp, this isn't something... You know, oh, it's a sing-song. Actually, this is a holy activity. It's one way in which the Holy Spirit of God enables us to praise God, in which the, the filling of the Spirit is actually manifested in hearts that are warm with a worship of God. Because what Paul says is this. He says, addressing one another, singing to one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all of your heart. Now, I want us to notice this, that basically, this making melody to the Lord with your heart, the, the word, uh, the Greek word comes from the idea of the plucking of the heart strings. Plucking is the idea behind making melody in the heart. Just like someone plucks a string and the string moves. And worship is meant to move us. We feel the music in our heart. Our heart becomes an instrument for the Holy Spirit to play on as we come into the presence of the Lord and we we praise him. Now, I want us to notice this, that the idea of the heart in the New Testament is not merely of the emotions. 
If I, if I uh, talked about, um, you know, just an emotionalism, well, of course, it is relatively easy to use any kind of music to get an emotional mood going. But when the Bible talks about the heart, it's much more than, than emotional feelings. The heart is talking about the inner person, the seat of our motives, our attitudes, our thinking. It includes thinking processes. In Proverbs, it says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And Jesus asked a group of scribes in Matthew 9, chapter 1, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? And Jesus said, out of the heart, out of the heart comes evil thoughts. So when we're talking about uh, the Holy Spirit plucking on our heartstrings, we're not talking about listening to sentimental music of some sort or other, getting into a, a frenzy or, or a nice vibe. We're talking about something deep happening at the, in the deepest recesses of our, where, our, where our, our personality and our thinking is meeting in our hearts. And the Holy Spirit is enabling us to worship, praise the Lord. Um, and uh, to grow close to him. And in fact, of course, the best hymns that we have engage both emotion and mind. Uh, the best hymns are, are very imaginative representations of the, of the glory of God, uh, which our minds and our emotions are able to engage with and praise God and use them as tools to praise God with. Now, when Paul, therefore, says, making melody in your heart to the Lord, well, the first thing we notice, out goes meaningless repetitions. I mean, it is almost impossible for someone to repeat a phrase 20 times over and really mean it every time. You know, um, you don't really feel anything significant. I mean, one of the problems with uh, some music is the constant repetition. How can you possibly, when you've said it 20 times in a row, actually mean uh, even hallelujah How, you know he's just if you repeat it and repeat it and repeat it by the, by the after the fourth or fifth time you know the, the meaning goes out of the word remember jesus told us when you pray don't heap up empty phrases now singing is a form of prayer and if we're heaping up empty phrases as the gentiles do the pagans do we're just showing that our attitude is is is, is of the flesh because we're not making melody with our heart to the Lord if we're just repeating over and over again um, meaningless, empty phrases. Now, Jesus did when he prayed, he did repeat himself three times, didn't he, when he was in the garden. Lord, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. Three times. And every time he meant it, as we read the drama of that passage, you can feel the, the vehemence in Jesus' prayer each time. So repetition is, of course, possible, but not continual repetition over and over and over again. So the mere singing of words, the mere repetition of words, is, is not what, what the Lord wants from us, what Paul tells us the Lord wants. He wants us being making melody to the Lord with all of your heart. All of your, yeah, I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also, Paul says in, uh, in his letter to the Corinthians. And so, you know, out goes emotionalism. In comes these things, which I would suggest to us, that we, we resort to praise and singing as many occasions as possible in our lives. Sometimes it may be silent. Sometimes, you, you know, we can use a, we can use a, a mobile phone uh, uh, with, uh, with, with hymns on it. Uh, we can go on YouTube and listen to, to modern Christian uh, hymns that are good, or for that matter, the older Christian hymns too. And we can 
Uh, we can praise the Lord as we listen to it. When we're doing jobs, we can have Christian songs on and we can, uh, at the same time as doing a job, we can actually express praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. During our prayer times, let us sing praise. Let's not just give a, a long list of our requests to God. Let's also give our thanksgiving to God. Because I want us to notice that Paul says this. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything. And uh, one of the things that we, we need to do is, as we are praying for things, equally well to be thanking God. And the manifestation of the outflowing and overflowing of the Holy Spirit is being a thankful people. Let's sing uh, when we can. Let us praise when we can. And when we come together as Christians, even in the oddest of circumstances, let's pray and let's praise. Remember Paul and Silas uh, in Acts chapter 16? There they are, imprisoned, beaten, whipped. And what are they doing? They are praising the Lord. They're giving thanks. Always giving thanks. Now, um, I want to move on from this question of singing to our general attitudes. Paul is not merely talking here about the relationships with other Christians, that our relationship with other Christians should, we should try to engage spiritually with our fellow Christians, both in church context but also in out of church context. But I want us to notice he also says, I'm, I'm, I think he's also talking about our own individual lives, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in, a, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want us to notice that giving thanks is, is, is the opposite of moaning. Now, I bought a T-shirt from Poundland uh, a few months ago, and on it it says, Warning, grumpy old man, never happy unless moaning. And the thing is, I bought that to remind myself that that is exactly what I'm like, you know. Except, frankly, I'm, I'm old now, but when I was once young, but I was still the same. It, it could have been grumpy young man, always moaning. Um, and I'm afraid since I bought the T-shirt, uh, you know, I still need to put it up. Uh, I sometimes wear it, you know, I, because the truth of the matter is, uh, with me, and I don't know what's true with you, we can be very positive in front of other Christians, but when we're like by ourselves, well, oh, this, oh, that, moaning, groaning, grumbling and complaining. In, in Scripture, there is this theme going right the way through from Old Testament times, from the time of the people in the desert. Moaning and grumbling is something that God absolutely abominates. The moaning and grumbling. We are to be a thankful people. And uh, maybe... One day, before I die, I hope, I might be able to wear a T-shirt that says, Joyful old man, always giving thanks. At the moment, I definitely couldn't wear that. But maybe if you pray for me and help me out, maybe one day that will happen. And uh, that will be true of me, not just you know, in front of other people, but it will be true in every situation. Joyful man, joyful young man, always giving thanks, in all circumstances, good and bad. Because Paul is specifying, always Always and for everything. In times of pain, disappointment, in times of real trauma, that we still give thanks to the Lord for all of his goodness to us. And uh, we obviously need to be filled with the Spirit to be, to be thankful. I mean, this is not a minor matter, as I've said. Remember, when ten lepers were healed, only one came back to thank Jesus for what he'd done. Ten of them were crying out for help, 
and yet only one voice returned to thank him, and, and it actually was a pagan. It was a, a Gentile that came back to thank Jesus, and Jesus said, well, what's happened here? The, the people of Israel, nine of them who, who have been healed from this terrible disease, they're not thanking. And here's this pagan who has faith, has come to faith, and he's thanking Jesus. And, you know, we, we, we have to give a return to God for all of his benefits to us, as we were thinking about in Psalm 103 when we started the service. You know, to, to all that is within me, praise his holy name, forget not all of his benefits, and give thanks um, in all circumstances for what he's done for us. Let's not be like those lepers. And we need the filling of the Holy Spirit, the constant filling and refilling of the Holy Spirit in our deepest part of our being to be able to be like that. And finally, and uh, this is what uh, I'm going to go into much more detail next week, we see that uh, Paul says that, um, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I don't really want to say m- uh, much on this because it's already quarter two, um, uh, but apart from this, the word for submitting to one another is a word uh, that, was, that comes out of kind of Roman army situations where um, you know, a squad of men would be told, you know, get into line, you know, and they would go into their given position in, um, you know, in the troop. And it, it, uh, now, some people, therefore, have assumed that what Paul was talking about here when talking about submitting is like, oh, right, we are to make ourselves like, you know, it's a question of superiority and inferiority. I'm going to be the inferior person and the other person is the superior person. And then it's kind of thinking like in terms of a hierarchy within the church. I think we'll see that from Paul's, um, from Paul's general, uh, general speaking on these matters, this is, this is not so. Paul is telling us that we need to, uh, and he tells us again and again, always put other people's interests before yours. You know, give no offense to everybody. Go out of your way to show love. Um, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, he says this. He says, um, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. When Paul is talking about submitting to one another, it means this. It's not that you know, we're going to grade everybody into a hierarchy, but rather we ourselves kill our selfishness. We're no longer to be number one. The other person comes first. That, I mean, this is fundamental to this idea of church life, that we count others as better than ourselves. In other words, we put them, you know, top of the list. It's not my, it's not my views um, on, you know, um, uh, this, that, or the other that, uh, you know, are going to have to dominate. I'm not always going to have my way. Rather you seek to have the other person, your rightful place in the queue in your own mind, in my mind, has to be at the end of the queue. I'm the last one to get fed. I'm the last one to be uh, congratulated. I'm the last one to, you know, to have my own way on, on minor things. Now we're going we're gonna to see how that principle operates uh, in these other areas um, of life, um, both marriage, children and parents, in our employment and so on. But I do want us to notice this. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now here is the, 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 the thing which um, 
It is the bedrock of all of our relationships in church. Our relationships with our fellow Christians has to be, has to be grounded in our awe and reverence for the person of Christ who is the head of the church. You know, we're not in a, a cockpit of people, well, shouldn't be in a cockpit of people fighting for position for, um, you know, for um, recognition, for approval and so on. We are, we are rather to be in a situation where we know our Lord Jesus Christ has died for our brother and sister. And they, they have tremendous significance for eternity. And therefore we should treat them with the respect and the love that Christ treats them with. And out of reverence for Christ, we treat our fellow believers with love and concern and consideration and honor and respect. And uh, I would like to, to, to uh, just um, say that um, it's, it's clear that when churches do split, when churches have big problems, it is precisely because of you know, the egotistical principle at work within our own hearts lift us up, make us feel more special, more important, more, uh, you know, more worthy of attention than our fellow Christians. And we're not prepared to sink our differences, to forgive and forget, to, to just allow, us, allow our, you know, our preferences to be, uh, to be not dealt, uh, dealt with or, 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 or held to go forward. But we, we need to do this in reverence for Christ himself. Now, notice that our passage has talked about the Holy Spirit um, welling up and, and uh, coming out in John, because I mentioned uh, John 7 in, in, in the, uh, the sermon title. The Holy Spirit welling up and flowing in our lives. And the Holy Spirit wishes to glorify Jesus Christ. He is the center. Out of reverence for Christ, we love our, our fellow Christians. Out of reverence and love for Christ, we allow the Holy Spirit to, con- to take more and more control of our being. Now, may the Lord help us, me included, grumpy old me, uh, to actually uh, see more of the Lord working in our lives uh, in these days. Let's just pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you have granted to us sinners such a wonderful salvation in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we, oh, Lord, it is amazing that the Holy One became sin on our behalf so that we might, in him, become the righteousness of God. And, Lord, have the righteousness of God. And we, we thank you, Lord, that you have also granted to us this amazing gift of the Holy Spirit to be our personal counselor, to be the personal companion and to be the one who points us to Christ and then indeed can transform our lives and help us, Lord, in this exhausting and enervating world uh, where we, uh, Lord, easily fall into sin. We so easily, Lord, get discouraged and tired. But we thank you, Lord, that you have granted that in our innermost being there is a river of living water bringing life and new energy to us uh, if, we, if we trust if we trust. Jesus Christ. And Lord, uh, Lord, we pray, help us uh, to be alive in these days uh, through the Holy Spirit's power, fully alive in our daily uh, walk. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.